I'm out of practice. I didn't have my mic turned on. So, you know, I get the big table this morning, <clears throat> which is okay with me. I like being able to spread out. This works. So, good morning. Uh, for those that are here all the time, good morning. And for those that are visitors, welcome. We're happy to have you here. Uh, we do believe that nothing happens by mistake um, and that God has called you here today. So I hope that either you get something from the worship this morning or from today's message. Um, I hope God is able to speak to you. Um, if you know anything about my family, um, you're about to learn, we love water. Um, we love swimming. We love boating. We love all the things that involve water sports. We even like drinking it, um, which is weird, right? No. <laughs> uh, no, we really like water. It's hard for us to actually uh, see a vacation that doesn't involve swimming or something like that, you know. Uh, David actually said, like, last week that we just got back from a vacation up in Michigan. I don't know if you've ever been to the Great Lakes um, or anything, but you can describe it in two ways. It's both beautiful and cold. Uh, it's very cold water, but it's worth it. It's very, very pretty, right? You get all the benefits of like swimming in the ocean with none of the bad taste. It's really great. And uh, so anyways, we, we love swimming, and which is also one of the reasons why every year uh, my family get pool passes. And Sarah gets to take the kids to the pool, like what, at least seven times a week, <laughs> right? They go to the pool all the time because the kids just absolutely love it. They're like little fishes, okay? Uh, especially what's really fun is Jacob, uh, because it's, you know, he's this big, right? And it's really fun to watch this little kid that's this big walk over to the big blue slides at Memorial Pool and the lifeguards have a minor heart attack. Uh, <laughs> and I remember one time we were walking over there, I was walking him up there, and the lifeguard stood up when they saw him coming. And it was just like, I, was, I had to actually tell the lifeguard, it's okay, he knows how to swim, <laughs> you know. And in general, like, I know why the lifeguards are there. Um, you know, they're there to keep us safe. Uh, they make sure you don't die. Like, okay, I get it. Uh, but I don't know if... <laughs> I don't know if you're like me or not, but I don't like rules without reason. <laughs> uh, and the lifeguards to me are really bad about that. <laughs> um, they're just, they're really bad. To me, they just come up with rules. Like there's nothing written down. Uh, they just, they just do whatever they want. They get to sit up on this high podium. And because of that, they apparently have the authority over all of the water and everything, you know. And I, I remember one time I walk up to there and they have these like ropes, right? That's supposed to be like a fence, I guess, you know. And I walk up to there and I just walk up and I just barely kind of do this. I just barely put my hands on it. And the lifeguard's standing there. I'm not leaning, right? I'm not doing it. No. I touch them. He goes, get off the ropes. And my gut reaction was, why? <laughs> I'm going to get kicked out of the pool one day. I know I am. Um, because I, I don't like that. I don't like rules without reason. Um, he just, and I surprised him. He gave me this look back like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, why? Like, in what way is my action right now impeding the safety of the citizens of Jefferson City because I'm leaning on a rope? Explain this to me, right? The same thing with like splashing in a pool. You're wet. You're already wet, right? Or uh, we got in trouble the last time we were there because I put Jacob on my back in the water. We were in the water and like two feet of water. I get on my back. He can't be on your back. Why? Is that a new rule? Did you just come up with that? Again, I'm going to get kicked out. I don't, I don't like rules without reason. And it's like, what's he going to do? All of a sudden, is he going to overpower me and shove my head under the water until the bubbles stop? Like, no, that's not what's going to happen, right? Calm down. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a reason for the story. Okay, I promise. Uh, <laughs> this isn't just a rant. Um, 
Because I also acknowledge in me, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate, this innate rebellion. This, this thing of just, I don't like people telling me what to do. Um, I especially don't like people telling me what to do when either I disagree with them or I feel like they're just trying to be authoritative to be authoritative. Like, for some reason, you feel like you have to be right in this scenario. Those kind of things. Yeah. I, got, I, got, I got laughter down here. People are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Like, I mean, everyone, ha- you have that boss, right? You have that boss, you have that coworker that's just like, well, no, we need to do it this way, and you just want to come back. Why? Because it's in us. Rebellion is in us. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like submitting to authority, right? And this goes all the way back. I know we talk about this all the time, but this goes all the way back to the garden, right? I don't want to submit to the authority of God. I want to be God, right? I'm giving the awkward silence because you know it's true. You know that even if you don't, maybe your knee-jerk reaction isn't just to immediately fight back. Why? Why do I have to do this? Maybe that's not you. But you understand that. You understand that we like to fight back against authority, especially if it's something that you feel like is impeding your rights or something, right? Well, today we're going to be walking through chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. And what Jesus is going to be doing in this story is showing us what good authority is. He's going to be showing us that he is a good king. That he is a person that we can follow. Yes, he may have rules. Yes, he may have things that he wishes us to do. But they're good. They're loving. And they're merciful. And yeah, there may be times we want to kick back and ask, why? But ultimately, what he wants us to do is trust that he's God and we are not. So as we read through chapter five, go ahead and turn there if you will um, so you can read along with us. I want us to keep that in mind. The authority of Jesus, okay? And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have black Bibles in the chairs, uh, those little racks underneath the seats. Feel free to grab one of those. You can read along that way. Um, If you know someone that needs a Bible, go ahead and take one of those. You can give it away as a gift, okay? Um, But you can also follow it with device if you want to, okay? So we're going to get into chapter 5 here. This is a turning point in the Gospel of John, actually. Um, The first four chapters, uh, God revealed to us through John um, the person of Jesus is the best way to think about this. Like who Jesus is uh, right in the beginning, the word, right? All of that, who he is, what his ministry is, 
right? Those kind of, Jesus, the son of God, is revealed to us in the first four chapters. In chapter five, we have this turn. It's this change. And it's going to stick around for the next few chapters. And it's no longer about the revelation of Christ, but instead it's about the opposition to Christ. And we're, so we're going to see Jesus kind of stir in the pot a little bit more, okay, over the next few chapters. And that's kind of the big change that we're going to see here in chapter five. Um, we, see, we see Jesus coming, right? And he's this, he's this sinless, loving, merciful person. He's this fulfillment of scripture and the very people that should be backing him up and should be helping him out with this ministry, all of that. Instead, they oppose him. And that's, that, that's kind of the stories we're going to get for the next few chapters. So let's go ahead and read uh, John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1 real quick. Um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We're going to go ahead and stop. One verse. That's all you get out of me, okay? Uh, <laughs> one verse. All right. After this, after what? Okay, let's do just a quickly recap so we remember where we're at, all right? Last week, we talked about Jesus healing, right, the son of the uh, Roman soldier or the uh, many different ways of saying it, right? But um, healing the son, right? And he didn't even have to be there, right? All he did is say, go, your son is made well. Everyone remember the story from last week? Okay, so all right, this took place in Cana, okay, the same place that the wedding, right? They're turning the water to the wine. Same place. That's where we were uh, in last week's message. Well, now this is the after this. So we started in Cana, and now we are heading for a feast in Jerusalem. Between Cana and Jerusalem, we're talking about mm, 67, 70 miles, okay? So this would have taken, you know, a couple weeks, something like that to get there, okay? So we're not talking about between chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're not talking about like months and months and months and months or anything like that, okay? This isn't this huge timeline. And the only reason why I want to point that out is because, like I said, this is a turning point in the Gospel of John. But from a timeline standpoint, it's pretty quick, okay? Jesus has kind of changed what, how he's going to be approaching things, and he has done it in just a couple weeks' time, okay? So that's where we're at, all right? So now we're heading up to Jerusalem, and we're going to go ahead and move forward with verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So these pools, it's actually plural, there's actually two pools, um, but th these pools were located just outside the gate of Jerusalem, as it says here. Now, the names of these pools is actually what makes the rest of the story pretty interesting. Okay, so the name Bethesda in Aramaic, okay, is actually a construct of two different words, okay? That's, that is the word Baeth, okay? And I'm sure Nate can get me later for these things, but um, I, I can't remember, uh, I'm really bad with verb and noun when it comes to Aramaic stuff, okay? But it's Baeth, okay? Which in, uh, basically is translated to what our English language would say is house, Okay, Baeth, okay, and then we have Kaish, or I'm pronouncing that wrong, I know, but, because it's, it's really weird pronouncing, which basically means uh, loving kindness or mercy, okay? So literally, the name Bethesda means house of mercy. That's what it means. It's not even a house, right? It's a pool, but that, that's the name that is given to this area that's right outside the Sheep Gate of Jerusalem. And so this is important. And because what does Jesus want to come and show at the house of mercy, right? He comes and shows mercy, right? Is what we, lead, what we learn later on in the story, okay? And that's what makes sense in this. Now, what I, I tried to look this up, and honestly, I couldn't find a concrete answer one way or the other because I thought it would be really interesting to know what came first, 
the gathering of the great multitude or the naming of the pool, right? If it was, it wasn't named a house of mercy because all of a sudden you see all these people that need mercy, right? Or was it named the house of mercy and then that pulled the people there? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't find that out. It's not necessarily important, but it's kind of an interesting thought. Like what, what came first? Like why is this place specifically called a house of mercy? Because one, it's not even a house. It's not even in the temple. It's just some water, right? Well, we kind of get that in verse four. Now, before you freak out, <laughs> some of your translations might not have a verse four. But what you're going to do is you're going to probably find it down in the footnote of your Bible, okay? Um, some of your translations might actually have a verse 4, and there's a reason for that. So let me kind of explain a little bit before we read, okay? So what probably happened is in the very earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John is that this little footnote, which is verse 4, was actually written either on the side of the scroll or at the bottom, something like that. Okay, and all it was was meant to kind of explain why the people are there. Okay, and it's not necessarily like adding anything to scripture or anything like that because it's more supporting what we're eventually going to read in verse 7 later on from what the man is saying. Okay, um, which uh, Jerry already read this for us this morning, but we'll get back to it. Okay, it's basically just supporting that. And then over time, this footnote or the side note, whatever, kind of made its way into certain translations and became eventually verse 4. That's it. So I, I just don't want you, I don't want any of this, well, hey, my Bible says this. Like, let's just talk about it from the beginning. That's what's going on. That's why some have verse 4 and some do not. All right? But we're going to go ahead and read verse 4 like verse 4. Okay? Let's go ahead and read it real quick. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So like I said, this was kind of a textual debate and everything. It's not adding anything. Later on in verse 7, the man says kind of the same thing. Like, this is why I'm here, right? <clears throat> so anyway, don't be alarmed or anything, but that's why it's there, all right? Now, there's a couple different ideas here, okay? When we think about this stirring of the water and people are coming in there and they're trying to, you know, obviously get healed and everything because they want to get in there. It's a legend, right? But there's also the cases where sometimes legends start with some form of truth, right? That can happen. And let's be honest, this isn't the first time God did some weird miraculous healing from water. Everyone remember the story of Naaman in 2 Kings? What was he told to do? He was told to go out and wash himself in the Jordan River, and he was healed of his leprosy, right? So this isn't like outside of the gamut of things that God could perform, right? So it may have been that sometime in the past, at the pool of Bethesda, someone walked in there and got healed. And then from then on, people was like, well, obviously the pool is magic, right? So then you go there and you try to get healed by getting in there. Now, I don't know who turned it into a race and where that rule came from, where it's like, no, no, the only way it works is if you're the first one in. You know, kind of like how Ricky Bobby said, if you're not first, you're last, right? But that's the only way this magic water works is you have to be the first one in there, right? So I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but maybe, maybe at some point, someone got healed in the pool of Bethesda. Or, from our modern way of thinking, we would simply say, well, maybe it's just an artesian well, right? 
artesian well, which is like this deep well that bubbles up every once in a while, or a hot spring, something like that. We would describe it like that. That's all it was, right? Superstition at best. That's it. So let me give you a very clear pastoral shepherding guidance for this. I don't know. (laughs) We can't take anything from the text that tells us one way or the other. And to be honest with you, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus doesn't go in there saying, hey, this is wrong, stop doing this, or hey, this is right, you're in the right place. He doesn't do anything necessarily like that. And actually, that's what we're here to focus on. We are here to focus on what Jesus does when he enters the house of mercy that is in the backyard of the temple. That's what we're here to focus on. So let's first not worry about necessarily about these magic waters or anything like that. But instead, what we're going to do is further kind of unpack this scene that we see at the Pool of Bethesda. Let's think about this, right? It's a multitude of invalids. I don't know how you much a mul- I don't know how, if you know how much a multitude is, but that's a lot, right? That's a lot of broken people looking for mercy, looking for healing, looking for even guidance, right? They're looking for help. Now on top of that, some of them, right, were, were paralyzed. The, the guy that's kind of the star of the show here that we're going to read about was paralyzed for 38 years. Jason, I don't, do, do you guys deliver to the Pool of Bethesda? No? Okay, so there was no porta potties okay? So let's think about that for a second. All, just all of the, the, the smell and the flies and just the, the, the cloud of desperation of people that are just, every time that water would stir up, right, the angel would come down and take her magic spoon and stir up the water, right, and they would just rush into the water. And the people that should be able to relate to them the, mo- the most saying, hey, you're just as hurt and as bad or whatever as I am, let's try to help each other out. No, they're kicking each other trying to get to the water first. So, Make no mind. This is not a house of mercy right now. This is a house of shame. Because see, the other thing that we realize back in these times, um, well, actually, we kind of get it in chapter 9, whenever Jesus and the disciples meet a blind man outside the temple. And the disciples ask him, who sinned, him or his parents, that he should be born blind? Because see, back in then, and we've talked about this before as well, they didn't just see physical ailments as physical. It was both physical and spiritual. It was both, right? It was together. And that's how they viewed it, okay? It it was kind of like this upside-down prosperity gospel that the Pharisees were kind of pushing out, that if you were rich and powerful and healthy, God loved you. If you were poor and sick, God hated you. Or someone or you sinned, you're bad in some way. So then, therefore, you would be sent to this, apparently, house of mercy, But really, it's a house of shame because in your mind, that's all I got left. This is it. And let's also think about the location here. It's located right by the sheep's gate. The sheep's gate is where all the livestock was brought in for temple sacrifices. So they're sitting here suffering, banking it all on these magic waters and listening to the sheep and cattle being brought in for temple sacrifices, a place that they knew they could never go because of their shame and because of their ailment. So see, for them, a healing, a physical healing wasn't just about being able to walk in or see again. It was about being able to reincorporate them into the society. It was about being welcomed. 
It was both. So this heavy house of shame. And Jesus just walks right in. He walks right in. Let's read verse 5 for a second. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. I really like how John writes this. He does a really good job of trying to set the scene. He wants us to know what the name of this pool is, the name Bethesda, and everything that goes along with that. He wants us to know where it is, and he wants us to know who's there. And then so he sets this entire scene so we get this understanding, and then it goes right down. One guy. One person. And he comes right in there, and Jesus walks right up to him and says, do you want to be made well? And be honest, this is kind of where the message gets uncomfortable. It gets uncomfortable. It gets a little weird <laughs> uh, for some. Because there's a few different ways to kind of take the question of, do you want to be made well? Because he comes back and he says, well, of course I do. Of course I want to be made well. Look at where I'm at. I'm at the waters. This is where you come to be made. This is where people like me come to be made well. But I can't do it because people are always getting in front of me and no one's helping me. I can't do it. And maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you know someone that's just, I want to be made well. I want to get better. But I just can't. I just can't. But it's like, are you, are you trying? <laughs> you know? Because we can interpret it this way too by just simply adding a couple words, right? Do you, want, do you even want to be made well? You know better. You know this isn't the place. You know this is not true. You know this is fake. But yet, you're trying this? Right? Like, there's a couple different tones that we could take here from Jesus' question of just simply, do you want to be made well? Maybe we know, like I said, maybe we know those kinds of people that just, I want to be made well, but I'm just not willing to do what it takes to do that. I'd rather continue trying to seek my wellness over here in the magic waters, so to speak. But Jesus comes up to him and just simply asks, do you want to be made well? And he gives all of these excuses on, well, I've been trying and I just can't. But then eventually he looks up to Jesus and says, but you know what? You're right. I am seeking this in the wrong place. I, I am doing this all wrong. You're right. You're, you're Lord. You're King. You're, you're the one I need to be following. Healing only comes from you. Lord, please heal me. And then Lord, actually, no. That's the other uncomfortable part. This isn't a story of repentance. We don't get that story. We don't even get a story of him asking. 
right? We don't get a woman of the well story where he comes up and starts ministering to her and encouraging her, telling her all everything she, he knows about her and then revealing himself as the Messiah. We don't get that. We get a guy saying, I'm trying to seek healing in the wrong places and then Jesus heals him. That's uncomfortable. <laughs> because there are plenty of people that pray all the time for healing and never get it. It's uncomfortable. I think it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Because at the same time, the healing is great. The healing is right. But I don't think the healing has the purpose we think. And this is where I struggle a little. I'll be honest. Because it's not just about the healing. It's about the message that the healing was meant to show. And it's simply saying, Jesus has authority. Jesus is king. Jesus has the power. Jesus is God. That's the message. Because there's so many uncomfortable questions that come from the story. And we don't have time to unpack them all this morning. Um, I already felt like I had way too many notes for this because it was one of those kinds of things that's like, I, I want to make sure I say things right, you know? Because there's just so much uncomfortable stuff that goes along with this. But what, we just simply see the, the Lord of mercy walk into the house of mercy and offer mercy to someone who doesn't even ask for it. So there has to be more. There has to be more to this story. What, what are the handles for this? How does it, how, what am I supposed to get out of this? Right? The thing is, this entire event has an audience. Let's read, starting in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. He didn't even know who he was. He didn't even know who he was. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. In the place. Where they were. Where it happened. A crowd had gathered around the healing. The Pharisee is approaching the person around this crowd. Where the healing happened. The Pharisees were in the house of mercy and doing nothing. They were doing nothing. In fact, they were the ones, remember, spewing out this rhetoric that these people are shameful and should not be saved. And Jesus comes in and says, I call sinners to me. This is a house of mercy because I say so. 
and you've got it wrong. The Pharisees were sitting around watching all of this event happen, watching the healing, watching the crowd, everything. And the only thing they're worried about is the Sabbath law. But Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. My God, Father, is working. Therefore, I am working. Church, and this is the message that Jesus was trying to get across to the Pharisees. And this is a message that I feel like we need to hear today as well. That let us always be a true Bethesda. Let us always be a true house of mercy that welcomes the lame, the sick, the hurting, the spiritually dead, the ones that are truly seeking Jesus. We are meant to be that place for them. We are meant to be that refuge because the Lord is our refuge. What does the all authority, the all the power of Jesus, what, what does he do? He comes and he shows mercy to a person so that we, we are modeled that. And then he turns around later on, as obviously we will get in John, he dies for them. He dies for sinners. He dies on a cross. He sheds blood, death, burial, resurrection, and covers our sin so we can forever live in eternity with him. He shows us ultimate mercy by not just concerning himself with our physical ailments, but our spiritual ailments, so that we, we can be made whole and healthy with him. We are a house of mercy. We are called to be as such, not the Pharisees standing in the corner watching people suffer. And let's remember, the physical and the spiritual, Right? That's how they would have understood this. So when this healing happens, when this man is healed, he's not just healed and able to walk again. He is now able to spiritually be healed. He's welcome in temple, right? Jesus saves him, not just heals him, saves him. He turns the house of shame into a house of mercy. He removes the hypocrisy of the title and does what it's meant to do. And this only can happen from God. And it's because of this authority that he shows that they choose to kill him. That's why. The uncomfortable thing is Jesus chose one man to heal him miraculously to stir the pot. To show the Pharisees and even us today, don't be like that. Don't just stand in the corner. Welcome the spiritually sick. The truth of the matter is, miracle healings can happen. But the other truth is, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. And that's the truth. So why did he choose to heal this man or any other, right? Why, why this man and not this one? He's God. He's God. And as uncomfortable it is for all of us who have this rebellious nature in us, we want to say, why? But why? And he goes, because I'm God. Because I have authority. And it's up to us to submit to that authority. There's many of us that probably seek out this 
this healing in other places. You try to find your um, spiritual awakening maybe, maybe in self-help books or anything else like that. Maybe, maybe you have your own type of magic water that you're trying to find salvation in. Can you go ahead and throw that photo up? But I want to show you something. See that? That's the pool of Bethesda. Where is your magic water now? It doesn't last forever. It will dry up. Jesus is the living water. He will not dry up. And sometimes miracle healings happen. Sometimes they don't. But he is God. And he wants you to lean into that. Even when it's uncomfortable. The magic waters are gone. I would challenge you today, as you go home, as you continue your day, which water are you trusting in? Which water are you trusting in? Because the living water never dries up. One of the ways that we submit to authority, that we submit to Jesus, one is obviously prayer. We submit to him through prayer. We acknowledge through some of those prayers that he is Lord and he is in charge. But another way we can do that as well is simply remember what he did for us. And that he has the power to forgive sins and only him. And he did that on the cross for us. And we remember that through something we're going to be partaking in here in just a little bit, and that's the Lord's Supper. We use that to remember. Um, I want to read actually something from the Old Testament when it comes to the Lord's Supper before we have Nathan come up and we start doing this here. And it's actually in Psalm 51, verse 7. And it says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And I, I, I've kind of taught the Lord's Supper like this in the past, and um, I always like going back to this direction because it's, it's good to know, like, where this all started. And this idea of this purge with hyssop is kind of like a, a bundle of weeds is the best way to think about it, right? And they would dip it in the blood of the sacrifices. Remember the sheep gate, right? Those, sac those sacrifices. They dipped it in the blood, and they'd sprinkle it. Okay? And the idea is that the blood of the sacrifice is making you clean. It's for, forgiving your sins. But these animal sacrifices weren't enough. So they had to do it again and again and again and again. But what we're supposed to remember through the Lord's Supper is that Jesus did it once and it is finished. One time. That's the power of his blood. That's the power of that living water. So as Nathan begins to lead us in a response time, I had about three more pages of things that we wanted, I wanted to talk about, but I think we get the point. So, um, but as we lead in response time, I want us to think about the living water that we trust in in our lives. I want us to think about what Jesus has done for you. And ask yourself, do you believe in what the blood did? Do you believe in what his sacrifice is? And do you believe he is king?
You believe he has authority. We're going to ask the uh, deacons to come up. And while Nathan is leading us in response, please feel free to come up and get the elements.